Hello and welcome to the ACR Bulletin Podcast, the show where we examine the latest trends affecting radiology. I'm your host, Chris Hobson, and today we'll be speaking with Pratik A. Shukla, MD, Interventional Radiologist and Associate Professor of Radiology at the Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. Since July is Fibroid Awareness Month, we'll be, we'll be marking the occasion by discussing an abstract Dr. Shukla recently presented at the Society for Interventional Radiology, which focused on socioeconomic disparities and referral patterns with respect to uterine fibroid embolization, or UFE. Dr. Shukla, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Absolutely. Well, for those in the audience who may be a little bit unfamiliar with fibroids and UFE, can you please give us some background on what they actually are? Absolutely. The uterine fibroids are benign tumors of the uterus. Um, benign is the key word there. So these are not cancerous, but benign growth that occur in the uterus uh, in response to hormones during the uh, menstrual cycle. Um, as women go through their menstrual cycle over years, these tumors can grow and grow and grow. And if they're in particular um, locations or particular sizes, they can cause uh, very terrible symptoms in these patients. So for example, if these uh, tumors or masses are encro- encroaching on the endometrium, uh, patients can have very, very heavy bleeding during their menstrual cycle. And that you can imagine that can be pretty terrible. Um, some patients just have very heavy bleeding that just causes um, um, them to be uncomfortable throughout the day. But some patients will have to come to the emergency room during every cycle to get blood transfusion. So the, so the um, variability of symptoms is very high. Most patients will get some signs of anemia, including shortness of breath or palpitations, um, dizziness, and will end up really staying in for a few days, and it's really a um, really impedes their quality of life. Um, other symptoms, if the fibroids go, grow big enough, or in the or in the location of more outside of the uter- near the outside of the uterus, um, can be of pressure or pain in the pelvis, um, depending on where the tumors are pushing. Um, different symptoms can arise. For example, if they're uh, you know, putting pressure on the bladder, patients can have to go to the bat- bathroom frequently. If they're, you know, pushing on a nerve, you can have pain down the leg, you know, sciatica or back pain, um, lots of different things. So um, although these are benign tumors, they can have a really, really um, big impact on patients' lives. Um, like I said, they are responsive to hormone therapy. Uh, they are uh, responsive to hormones, so they grow as you go, uh, you know, go forward in life and have multiple cycles. Uh, once you get, you know, after menopause, these do shrink and go away because the hormones go away. Um, however, most women have symptoms between the ages of, you know, 30 and and, pre- and right before menopause. So um, usually they do seek treatment if they have very terrible treatment. Um, treatment options include anything surgical like hysterectomy, which is removing the whole uterus, myomectomy, which is having the fibroids taken out of the uterus surgically, or uterine fibroid embolization. So uterine fibroid embolization is done by interventional radiologists. It's a minimally invasive procedure that does not involve any cutting. Uh, It's not a surgery. It's all done through a small pinhole to the wrist of the groin arteries. We put a little catheter into those arteries, and the catheters are um, used, uh, go from the artery directly into the uterus using x-ray guidance. Once we get to the uterus and to the arteries that supply the uterus or the uterine artery, we inject dye um, to make sure that we can identify those arteries that are supplying the uterus and the fibroids. And we inject tiny little beads into those arteries to really slow the blood supply down to the fibroids. What happens in this scenario is the fibroids will shrink. You'll deprive them of their nutrients, and they'll become smaller and smaller and smaller over time. And once they do that, they'll take their pressure symptoms off, and they'll um, you know, come off of the endometrium, and the symptoms will improve. 
patients will improve dramatically over three to six months. It does take some time for the fibroid to shrink, um, unlike hysterectomy where you take the uterus out right away. However, this is all done through a pinhole in the wrist or groin. You go home the same day after the procedure and the risks of the procedure are very, very minimal, if at all. Yeah. And that was my next question actually was what, uh, you know, interventional radiology has to do with all this, but I think you've given us a very detailed explanation. So thank you for that. And I guess, you know, the, the part of, um, the abstract that you all presented on that, that really, um, that really raised my eyebrows and just really caught my attention was the fact that, um, of the socioeconomic disparities kind of dynamic you all were contending with in that abstract. So especially particularly when it comes to referral patterns of UFE. So can you please help us understand the nature and I guess the magnitude of the problem that you all were, were grappling with? Absolutely. So I'm, I'm sure interventional radiologists all across the country deal with this issue. Um, and it's the referral pattern. So anyone that has any sort of uterine bleeding or, or abnormal menstrual bleeding, we'll see a, a, an OBGYN or sometimes very few uh, times a primary care first. And then the uh, typically, you know, 99 to 100% of the patients will go to their OBGYN and get evaluated. Now, the OBGYN is the primary referral, um, uh, is the pr primary referrer for this procedure because they see the patients first. They actually provide primary care to women um, with regards to their menstrual. Um, and all interventional, all interventional radiologists across the country have noticed that, you know, the referral pattern for uterine fibroid embolization is very, very small. I think less than 10% of all women that suffer from uterine fibroids actually get a uterine fibroid embolization across the country. I think the number is around 8%. Um, and it's sort of mind-boggling because this is one of the procedures uh, in my field, which is a very young specialty that's been, you know, researched the most, has long-term data, um, and goes head-to-head -head with the surgical counterparts. Uh, especially, uh, you know, uh, hysterectomy. Um, it's very minimally invasive, has a lot, uh, you know, much fewer uh, side effects or complications. Um, and the recovery time is very, very fast. So um, even, you know, in my training when I was younger, I always wondered why the, the, why the referral pattern wasn't there. Um, so when I came to work at Rutgers and here in Newark, New Jersey, um, the population here is, and fibroids are endemic to the population. Fibroids impact African-American women three and a half times more than the, the normal population and Hispanic women about two and a half to three times more than the normal population. And that's my community here in Newark, New Jersey. So when I came here after training, I thought I would be doing tons and tons and tons of fibroid embolization, but that was not the case. Hmm. Um, so we, we started to look into it and to see, you know, to break down uh, why we're not getting these referrals. And initially when I started my practice, I did everything that a young budding physician does, you know, give grand rounds, um, go out to different healthcare, um, uh, sort of, uh, uh, awareness, uh, programs, um, go to, you know, different, um, uh, uh, educational sessions for patients. But what we realized at the end of the day, the referral comes from the OBGYN. Mm. Um, and we were kind of perplexed as to why we weren't getting referrals here, um, uh, from our community. So, um, the, the study we presented this year at SIR was, well, let's see if the patients, you know, if the patients are choosing, because ultimately uh, informed consent means the patient chooses their treatment based on the options that are uh, presented to them. And so we looked at women that uh, came to our hospital um, after being treated for fibroids with a surgical procedure, uh, most commonly hysterectomy. And we had them, uh, we talked to them and had them fill out a survey of 
you know, how, how do they choose hysterectomy over uterine fiber embolization? And one thing that we uh, uh, were, you know, what was a little shocking was a lot of them didn't even know that there was an alternative treatment option. Um, and the patients that were aware of it just didn't have the um, sort of knowledge of the procedure um, as they would have if they had seen an interventional radiologist in the office. And the patients that did have knowledge of the procedure, they were, um, the, the procedure was discussed to them by the OBGYN. Oh. So uh, there is definitely a referral issue there. Um, but another study that we presented a year, a year or two ago at SIR um, really looked at the breakdown of the patients and how they're being referred to us. So um, typically an issue that, you know, all physicians deal with is getting insurance approvals to get this procedure. Done. Right, right. So a lot of my colleagues across the country are working, you know, even at the legislation level to try to get insurance companies to approve this procedure as a treatment option for symptomatic uterine fibroids. But when I first started here, I saw the opposite. The patients that were being referred to me were getting approved right away, almost mm. instantaneously. And that's not the, the case for a lot of other procedures. So I asked uh, my office uh, staff, saying, you know, how, how do these patients get approved so fast? And they're like, oh, well, you know, if you have charity care or uh, Medicaid, the, the approval process is pretty quick. Wow. So that's something that really intrigued me right away. I'm saying that, you know, most of my referrals were underinsured. So I said, well, you know what, let's answer the question. Are we getting under, are pr the predominant number of fibroid embolization referrals we're getting, are, are they underinsured patients or do they represent, you know, a normal distribution of the surrounding area? So we noticed was 80% of our referrals in uh, to our, my whole group was underinsured. And we decided to define underinsured as no insurance, charity care, or uh, Medicaid. Right. Um, but then I, I started to think, well, what if that's what th that 80% actually represents the surrounding community? Um, so we went online from, uh, you know, the county database and we pulled the surrounding numbers. And in fact, the surrounding population had, was only underinsured about 35 to 40%. Hmm. So we were getting a higher uh, percentage of underinsured referrals. And I said, you know what, maybe this is unique to my community. And maybe in my hospital, we're, we're getting more of the underinsured patients. So I had a buddy of mine, uh, you know, go through the same IRB process and do the same exact data analysis with his patient population in a more suburban hospital in New Jersey. Okay. And lo and behold, their number matched the surrounding community. So huh. that was very shocking to me. Typically, when you think of access to healthcare, you think the underinsured, they don't have access to right. cutting edge, minimally invasive procedures. Right. But in this scenario, those are the only patients that are getting referred. And that's because in, I think they have to refer to a different specialty. So, um, I mean, we're not, we, we haven't answered the why questions yet, but there is definitely a disparity there. Um, there's definitely uh, an access to healthcare issue here. And that's something we're trying to dig into a little bit more. Um, there's also a healthcare literacy issue that we're no, uh, that we've identified through one of my uh, ongoing projects. Um, so you know we're trying to parse that. You know what are the reasons and how can we improve um, uh, our access? You know get this access to the patients. Yeah, and that that uh, my next question kind of builds on that too. It's something you mentioned a little bit earlier as you were talking there about uh, gynecologists and the referral patterns. I mean, that was that was something that came up in a, another article that I had read on this subject is that in the past, anyway, um, you know, among 
a lot of gynecologists, uh, there was a question as to whether UFE was a safe alternative uh, to hysterectomy or uh, you're going to have to help me with this word, myomectomy, I believe it's pronounced. Yep. Um, yeah. And and I believe, you know, just when we were talking just before the uh, we got started here, I think you kind of confirmed that. But I mean, have you so you haven't you haven't, you know, got dug into the why of everything yet. You've sort of at that what level and maybe how and maybe the how actually is this this referral pattern among gynecologists. So do you have any plans at this point to have any sort of intervention with those who are referring them or is that in the future maybe, or? That's a great question. So that's something that us as IRs have been doing forever. Um, we have randomized control data with, with a 10 year follow-up. I mean, the ME trial uh, is one of the big pivotal trials in interventional radiology. Um, this is a procedure that's been studied, you know, almost as much as any other procedure in IR. Hmm. Um, and the data is there. And I think um, uh, I think the OBGYN community, you know, in 2023 may be uh, knowledgeable of our data. Um, it, you know, a lot of it's published in their literature, not just in the radiology and the IR journals. Um, and uh, on the education front, you know, me, as well as all my colleagues in the field, we we do it all. We give grand rounds to um uh different OBGYN groups. So I've give, given grand rounds at Rutgers, I've given grand rounds at all the surrounding hospitals that have a residency and fellowship training program. Um I've done CME lectures for private practice OBGYNs, um, uh, you know, lots of health fairs and uh community events where OBGYNs come out. We also do educational events um at those things and we've done them, you know, tirelessly. Mm. Um, and there is sort of a you know, I've heard the, oh, wait, you know, does it work as well? And the data is there. Yeah, it works, you know, just as well. Um, you know, what's the complication rate? You know, that's been ironed out pretty well, pretty um, clearly in the literature. And, and in 2023, it's very, very minimal, if at all. Mm. Um, with that said, you know, the surgical counterparts, you know, they're getting uh, more technologically advanced as well. But this is an option that's there. And when you present these options to patients, I think patients should... Um, you know, anytime you undergo a procedure, we talk about the informed consent process. And the informed consent, everyone says, you know, these are the risks and benefits of the procedure. But the third arm of that is the alternatives of the procedure. And I think that the alternatives of the procedure should be discussed by the, the physician or provider performing those procedures. Um, so, for example, when a patient finds me through social media or through the Internet and they, you know, haven't seen an OBGYN, I won't do a uterine fibroid embolization until they go talk to their OBGYN about all the alternatives and let the patient make the decision. Um, I think that's where there's a little gap where I think um, if they refer for, you know, just an office visit or just to, uh, you know, chat with an IR, I think that would improve um, awareness of the procedure. Um, but I can't say for sure. Yeah, it's so interesting. You've, you've actually answered question after question here that I had. Uh, it's so interesting just to hear you you speak about this because you're, you're clearly animated by this issue and you and you put your money where your mouth is. I mean, you're out there in the community really engaging. Um, and and it's so this is one of the I, I've been uh, very entrenched in, you know, population health management and health equity for the last few years, especially this is one of the first instances I've seen, you know, if everything bears out as you, you know, build out your, you know, your, your, your study here. But it seems at least in the early going, this is one of the first times I've ever seen it where the less the, the less access uh actually the the higher resource population seems to be having the more access issues that's that's i've never i don't want to say i've exactly. never seen that before but that is very interesting so we'll yeah, keep very our eye counterintuitive. on that um very counterintuitive 
Yeah, and I think it happens in the underserved community. So I think it's the community that, you know, doesn't have access to both healthcare, but also um, to, you know, health healthcare education, health, you know, has a lower right. health literacy. Um, and then, you know, the, another question I would get asked is, well, you know, how are you going to increase the, the awareness for the for, for your patients? And one thing we have to realize is my community doesn't have access to um, the, the normal education tools that other right. communities may have. So, for example, social media. Um, you know, um, you know, in 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 yeah, business we call it marketing. For in medicine we call it uh, awareness. Um, but the traditional awareness or marketing tools don't work here because in my community patients may not use social media as a tool to get healthcare education. Um, they they may not use the internet for healthcare education purposes. Right. And with the health low healthcare literacy, that effect, impacts their ability to even interpret the resources that they have. So actually I published, uh, my group published a paper a few years back where we looked at all online education materials um, related to uterine fibroid embolization. So if you Google uterine fibroid embolization, the top 50 um, education tools that come up, whether it be uh, university websites or, or awareness foundation websites or whatnot, and we did a readability study. And what that does is it looks at the website and uh, determines how complicated are these uh, tools to read, um, and it gives a, a grade level. So most most of these uh, online education tools were written at a grade level of 10th to 11th grade. Mm. The average American adult reads at the grade level of a fourth grader to a sixth grader. So gotcha. um, a lot of these uh, medical, a lot of medical writing is not written for the general public. So um, and it's harder in a community where you have low healthcare literacy. Um, so to answer, you know, you know, how are we going to change the or how are we going to increase awareness? That this is something I'm trying to work on right now. I'm really trying to figure out. Yeah, and I, as I understand, been very tough in our community. I, it sounds that way, and it sounds like you've been also not only all the stuff you're already doing, but it sounds like you're also working with the Radiology uh, Health Equity Coalition, which is ACR is kind of a member of. And and I'll I'll, I'll put a, a link to that in the show notes. I want to make sure that we foreground your community based work and, and your work with the uh, the Equity Coalition there. So, um, oh yeah, thanks for that. Uh, absolutely, um, I actually just came up, uh, just got introduced to them about you know, a few months ago, mm. uh, the Radiology Healthcare Equ uh, Equity Coalition, they're doing some fantastic work. Um, and they've been really receptive um, to everything that I have to say. And, you know, they've been uh, paramount in uh, helping me sort of figure out a strategy to increase uh, awareness and education for my population. And hopefully we'll, you know, over the next few years, we'll be able to come up with a strategy where we can really educate our patients. That sounds great, and and as part of that, um, not necessarily with the the coalition, but I since this episode will be dropping at the end of June as as it's scheduled, it looks like you'll be leading a session uh, at the upcoming Health Equity Community of Practice on this topic on yep. July 11th. Uh, yep. So I'll, maybe we'll also put a, in the show notes a link to that registration link. So. Um, oh, yeah, I just want to make sure we we uh, hit all the cylinders there. So, um, what um, what work do you think is still to be done in this space, especially when it comes to equity and referral patterns for for UFE or or maybe any other uh, discipline that you know in, in the spaces you work in? And I guess what what advice would you give to others working in this space who might who might be, you know, running up against some barriers? Yeah, I think um, patient advocacy is the most important thing. Um, so people ask, you know, well, you know, you're busy. You have a tons of other procedures. Why do you spend time uh, on this endeavor? Um, I've been, you know, since I've been attending the last five years, I've been trying to figure this out. And I think it's because I want to be an advocate for my patient. Um, I've had so many people come up to me that have had, you know, 
alternate procedures and they're like, Oh, I, I didn't even know about that. I wish I had known about that. Um, one of my, uh, family friends, um, out of a conversation, um, you know, didn't even know what interventional radiology was. She underwent a hysterectomy for fibroids. Very uncommon in the population, but um, she, it came up in conversation. I'm like, oh, did anyone talk to you about fibroid embolization? That's what I do. And had never heard of it. Um, wow. So um, for anyone that's in this space, it's, it's tough. Um, it, it's tough from a referral um, um, aspect. Um, but I think that, you know, if we all just work together, um, to figure out, you know, the root causes, um, and just figure out a way to increase awareness to our patients. I think it, it may be a long journey, but I think, you know, I hope to see one day, you know, instead of eight to ten percent of patients getting fibroid embolization, maybe, you know, thirty to forty to fifty or even more, um, getting fibroid embolization. And and you know, there's some patients where um alternative treatments may be um uh may be beneficial to them, but I think the patient should have at least all the options presented to them. Um, and should be able to choose which route they want to go to. Yeah, and it strikes me almost again. We keep bringing up this term health equity, and and uh, you know, it it seems to me like a an equity issue that you know, if you can get somebody in and out in a safe way, they can yeah. get back to work. I mean, how many of us can just take off how many days of work just to recover? Exactly. I mean, so so some people must take that into account, and they say it's not worth it. You know, and 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 that's so sad. I mean, I I, I hope that I I'm with well, you. I hope that. Well, that's, that's the other interesting thing is if you go undergo uterine fibroid embolization, people usually get it done on a Thursday. They're back to work on Monday. That's amazing. Um, and imagine hysterectomy. I mean, I mean, yeah, patients will get back to work in a couple of weeks, but it's still more than a couple of days. Um, so, and usually even longer with the surgical counterpart. So, yeah, mm. you're absolutely right. And it's definitely, uh, I think the equity issue is definitely there. Um, it definitely, um, the disease affects minorities more than, um, the general population, like I said, is three and a half times more for African-American women um, and you know, two and a half to three times more than Hispanic women. Um, I think the symptom severity has been reported is also a lot worse um, in minority patients. Um, so um, there's definitely a healthcare equity component to all of this. So interesting. Well, I should add that there, you know, just to build on the education piece, um, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but I know some some people, some of my colleagues here at the ACR have been working on a patient-friendly animation on uterine fibroids. Um, yeah, okay, good. I see you shaking your head. That's good. Um, there is a series on the JACR YouTube channel of, because uh, they're like short patient-friendly animations just to help uh, patients. Yeah. And, and it's really can be utilized by doctors to, to help their patients better understand different procedures. So that should be publishing soon. So we'll, if, if, if everything lines up, we'll hopefully get a, a link for that in the show notes as well. And I just wanted to say, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Uh, can people, you, you talked about social media a fair bit today. Did you, is there somewhere people can find you on like Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn? Definitely, definitely on Twitter. Um, just search my name and you'll find me, uh, it's a professional Twitter. Um, very active, uh, the, the IR community has a really strong presence on Twitter. Um, you know, a lot of doctors will share techniques and cases and things like that. So, um, yeah, you can definitely find me on Twitter. For sure. Awesome. Well, and for our viewers, if you have any future show topics, please let us know on Twitter at radiology ACR and use the hashtag, uh, hashtag ACR bulletin podcast. I also invite you to check out all of our past episodes at Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google podcasts, and please do be sure to subscribe to ACR's YouTube channel to see our latest episodes. And please hit that like button today. If you found this video valuable, thanks again, Dr. Shukla. We really appreciate you coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. Chris. Absolutely. You'll have to come back in the future and update us. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 
All right. And thank you to our listeners. This has been the ACR Bulletin Podcast. See you next time. <laughs>